You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We're going to begin today a study of the book of Acts. And so today is going to be a little bit different than what we normally do. Normally we are in a text, any one particular text of Scripture, giving an exposition of it. Today we are going to sort of get an overview of the book of Acts and sort of chart the course a little bit, give us a a paradigm, sort of a foundation in which we can understand some of the book of Acts and the events that happen in the book. And this overview will sort of allow us to see some of the particulars in the book and some of the things that are of interest to us and help us to understand who wrote it and why it was written and what's in there and why we have it in our New Testament. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. Uh, I had the book of Acts in Bible college when I went to Miller. And the professor who taught us the book of Acts, Acts had an accent. And nobody really knows exactly what kind of an accent it was. I think it was sort of a hodgepodge, and he used to refer to this as the book of the ox of the apostles. And he was Canadian, so there was a little Canadian accent in there, and he was um, Mennonite, and so there was a little bit of the Mennonite accent in there. And then he had been on the mission field in at least Mexico that I knew of, and probably two or three other mission fields, and, and then there was probably a mix of three or four other accents that were all piled in there together. So I showed up for Bible college and we were going to study the book of the Ox of the Apostles. And when I went to Bible college, I was absolutely ignorant of everything. I knew that there was a Genesis. I knew that there was a book of Revelation. I didn't know what either of those books had in them or what was between them. I knew vaguely that there was a man named Peter and a man named Paul who were somewhat significant in the whole scheme of things. Other than that, that's the extent of my biblical knowledge when I went to Bible college. I knew that I was a sinner, that Jesus was the Savior, that He had died for me, and that I was trusting Him for salvation. And after that, my knowledge pretty much came to a close. It was essentially it. And so I showed up. We were going to study the book, the ox, the apostles. I didn't even know the apostles had an ox. (laughs) But if there was a whole book written about the apostles' ox, I was willing to think that it must have been somewhat significant. He thought it was important to pronounce the T in apostles, but he glossed over the existence of the T in the word ox. The book of the ox of the apostles. I finally figured out that he was talking about the acts of the apostles. If I had figured that out before the final test, I would have done a lot better in that class. That's the book that's before us. There's no title really that does complete justice to the book. The title, the book doesn't give itself a title. We call it the Acts of the Apostles. We call it the Book of Acts for short. It's really the full title that's been pretty much accepted for the whole history of the Christian church is the Book of the Acts of the Apostles. But that really doesn't do it justice because it's not all of the apostles that are mentioned in the Book of Acts. Primarily, the Book of Acts is about Peter and Paul, two apostles. You really don't get any kind of feeling as to what the other apostles were doing. You don't hear of Matthew. You don't understand what... John was doing. You really don't get a glimpse into the life of James like you do Peter and Paul. So some have suggested, well, maybe we should call it the book of the Acts of Peter and Paul. That would be a little bit better, but not quite doing it justice because it's more than just Peter and Paul. I mean, Barnabas is mentioned in Silas and Timothy and 
James and John are all in there. In fact, there's a hundred different people mentioned in the book of Acts. So the book of the Acts of Peter and Paul is a bit too narrow. And some people have suggested, well, we should call it the book of the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Mr. Friesen, our professor, he preferred to call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And that was the title that he gave it for our class. Also known as the book of the Acts of the Apostles. The Holy Spirit's mentioned 50 times in the book, and it's a predominant theme. You're going to notice that as we go through the book, that the Holy Spirit is mentioned, and it really is a chronicle of the work of the Spirit of God in the church and the expanding ministry of Christianity. But it's not just about the works of the Holy Spirit, and so that's really narrow. There's no title that really does it justice, so we're just going to call it the books of the book of Acts. Short for the Acts of the Apostles, particularly Peter and Paul and the Holy Spirit who work through all of them. That will be the long name of the book of Acts. We're just going to call it the book of Acts. That's the title that we're going to give the book. And today what we're going to try and do is uh, give you an introduction to it. Uh, introducing this book is a challenging task. It's 28 chapters long. And some of you are doing the math and you're saying, you see, it took us a year to go through First Peter, which was five chapters. This is 28 chapters long. Five goes into 28, five, a little over five times. So that means we're going to be in the book of Acts for five years. And that's not it. We're going to be able to take a lot larger chunks of Scripture as we go through the book of Acts because it's a narrative, not didactic or not a teaching letter. It's a narrative of church history. So it's not going to take us five years to go through that. 28 chapters, 1,007 verses. The author mentions 100 different people, 100 different places, and gives us 26 separate speeches in the book of Acts. And it covers a time span and the events of 30 years in the early church history. Now where do you start in introducing that? As you can well imagine, the challenge is not to come up with something to say to introduce the book. The challenge is to distill everything that could be said about the book down into a package that you and I can sort of wrap our arms around before we dive into the text of the book itself. So I figured that it's probably beneficial if we just focus our thoughts around six questions that we could ask pertaining to this book. And we'll answer those six questions, and as we go through those, that will give us a real handle on, on the book itself. The first question is, who wrote Acts? Who wrote Acts, the book? The author of the book is a man by the name of Luke. He's the author also of the Gospel that bears his name. And I want you to turn and keep your finger in Acts chapter 1, but turn back to Luke chapter 1. Turn back to Luke chapter 1. We're going to read Luke's introduction to his Gospel, and then we're going to flip right over and read Luke's introduction to the book of Acts. Luke chapter 1. Luke said, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the Word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things that you have been taught. You'll notice that Luke, in that introduction to his Gospel, claims to be giving in a chronological order the events that started with the birth of Jesus. And it, and it, he launches out as if he's going to give us that all the way up into his present time. And he makes some startling claims in the introduction to the book of Luke. He says that what he's relaying to us are things that he investigated carefully 
and that he relied upon eyewitness testimony and that he examined these things to make sure that they were true. And it's addressed to a man named Theophilus. In fact, Luke calls him the most excellent Theophilus. Now turn back to Acts chapter 1. Luke says, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. What's the first account? The book of Luke is his first account. And here the book of Acts is written to the same person, the most excellent Theophilus. The first account was of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. This is the second account, and this is really all that Jesus continued to do and to teach, but not on earth physically, rather through the apostles. So we call it the works or the acts of the apostles. This is the continuation of the ministry of Jesus. All that He began to do and to teach is in the book of Luke. All that He has continued to do and to teach is contained in this second account, the book of Acts. Maybe we should refer to the book of Acts as Second Luke. Because although they're separated by the Gospel of John, they're really one work. They're one volume. In fact, the book of Luke ends with the ascension of Christ and the book of Acts begins right where Luke leaves off. He gives us some more details about the ascension of Christ and then continues with the history of the early church. Who was the author? It's Luke. And he writes it to a man named Theophilus. Now all we know about Luke from Scripture is this. He was most likely a resident of Antioch because he seems to focus particular attention upon the city of Antioch in the book of Acts. We know that he was a physician. He was a doctor, probably Paul's personal physician because he traveled with the Apostle Paul. We know from Paul's epistles, Colossians chapter 4, Paul calls him the beloved physician. We know that he was with Paul right up until the point of his martyrdom because in, in first, sorry, second Timothy chapter four, Paul says, only Luke is with me. Luke was the only one with Paul. Everybody else had deserted him. And Paul was all alone. It was Dr. Luke who was there. Basically Paul's physician. He traveled with Paul. And apart from that, that's all we know about Luke, really. Traveling companion of Paul. He was a doctor. Obviously a very learned man. Historically, he's incredibly accurate. He's meticulous in his detail as he goes through the book of Acts. He gives us incredible amounts of detail. And he's just meticulous in his examination of eyewitnesses and his putting together of a story. He's a very intellectual, very learned, very well-educated man. Now tradition tells us a little bit about Luke. Luke, this is not as authoritative as Scripture. Tradition tells us Luke was a resident at Antioch and that he was a Syrian. Now, if Luke lived at Antioch, that would explain how he came to know Paul. Because do you remember what church Paul was in when the Holy Spirit called him to ministry? The church in Antioch. If Luke was in Antioch, then Luke probably came to faith as a result of the ministry of those disciples who were in Antioch. Maybe Paul himself. And he ministered in Antioch and then traveled with Paul in his missionary journeys. Tradition says that, that uh, Luke was with Paul right up to the moment of his martyrdom. Tradition also tells us that Luke had no wife no children, and he served the Lord without distraction. And that he died at the age of 84, full of the Holy Spirit. That's what tradition tells us. Now, all of that kind of paints sort of an interesting picture of Luke, but it's not as authoritative as Scripture. What we know from Scripture, he traveled with Paul and he was a doctor, most likely Paul's physician, and served Paul in that way. Now, there's another who question that should arrest our attention. Who's Theophilus? Who's Theophilus? We don't know anything about Theophilus from anywhere else in Scripture. He's only mentioned twice. Once in the introduction to Luke and once in the introduction to the book of Acts. So the question comes up, who is this Theophilus? How did Luke know him? We don't know that. Was Theophilus 
uh, sympathetic toward Christianity or hostile toward Christianity. We don't know that. We don't know if Theophilus was a Christian or if he was not a Christian. Maybe the book of Luke's and the book of the book of Luke and the book of Acts were written for the purpose of bringing Theophilus to faith. Maybe Theophilus was a skeptic, and Luke wanted to put eyewitness testimony down on paper to begin to do that work of bringing him to Christ. We don't know anything about Theophilus. What is interesting to me, and tell me if this doesn't strike you as odd as well, two lengthy books of the New Testament were written to Theophilus, but we don't know anything about him. Is that interesting? Who was this man that would command the tension of the Spirit of God to put two books, lengthy books of the Bible, down in print for us, addressed to Theophilus? And we have no idea who he is. There's one clue as to who Theophilus might be, and it's in those words in the introduction to the Gospel of Luke, most excellent Theophilus. And that gives us a little bit of a clue. It's not totally helpful. Luke, three times in the book of Acts, uses the term most excellent to address somebody, all three times with of a Roman official. Twice of Felix, the governor, and then once of Festus, who succeeded him as governor. So it's obviously a, a term or a title that Luke uses to address Roman officials, people in positions of power and authority. Now I'm going to give you something that someone has suggested that I think is interesting, but I wouldn't go to the wall for this. This is just a suggestion and it's speculation. Some people have suggested that Theophilus was Paul's attorney, his lawyer, who argued his case before Caesar. He's a Roman official, maybe appointed by the court to defend Paul while he was in prison. If that's true, then it would make a lot of sense for some of the things that we see in the book of Acts. For instance, Luke takes goes through an incredible amount of detail in the book of Acts on the Apostle Paul. He's the central figure of the book. He starts off really in the first 12 chapters with Peter, but he focuses his attention on Paul. And one of the things that Luke brings out over and over and over again is that Paul had charges that were leveled against him, but that he was innocent of all of that. And Luke traces Paul's uh, court appearances, if you will, before Festus and before Felix and before Agrippa and eventually right into Rome. And in every instance, he's pronounced innocent. There's, there's nothing that stands. The false witnesses come forward. And Luke shows us over and over again, here were the charges that were made, but he was innocent. In fact, all of the Christians were innocent. Paul was above reproach. He didn't do any of this. And here are the facts. Now, a book like the book of Acts in the hands of a defense attorney would be an incredible piece of testimony from a credible, impeccable eyewitness, Luke, because he was with Paul. So it's very possible that Luke is, it's been speculated, that Luke is laying out Paul's defense for Theophilus, who was the most excellent, perhaps a Roman attorney who was to defend Paul. If he was that, then maybe he was a Christian, maybe he wasn't. That's interesting speculation, but that's all the farther we can go with it. Who wrote the book? Dr. Luke. And the second question is, when was the book written? When was Acts written? All of the clues as to when the book of Acts was written are given to us from within the book itself. And the biggest clue is the ending. Chapter 28. You know why that's the biggest clue? Because it ends so abruptly. It ends with the Apostle Paul having arrived in Rome. He's put in house arrest under guard. 
And He is allowed to have visitors come and leave freely and minister to Him. And it, Luke records at the end of the book that He was in that circumstance for two years and He taught and preached the Kingdom of God unhindered. Nobody stopped Him. Now that ends, that narrative ends at about 62 A.D. There are a lot of things that happen after the end of the book of Acts. One of the things that happens after the end of the book of Acts is Paul is released from his house imprisonment in 62 A.D. Do you remember what happens in 64 A.D.? Rome is burned. July 19th, 64 A.D., Nero sets fire to Rome and burns the whole city so that he can rebuild it again. In 67 A.D., Paul is martyred. In 70 A.D., Titus, the Roman general, invades Jerusalem, sacks Jerusalem, and levels the temple and destroys it. That's why there's no temple in Jerusalem today. Uh, Titus destroyed the temple in 70 A.D. Now here's the interesting thing. If Luke, who was a meticulous historian and focused on the life of Paul, if he wrote Acts after the death of Paul in 67 A.D., don't you think he would have mentioned that? I mean, it just defies historical integrity to not mention that. If he would have written that after the start of the persecution in 64 A.D., don't you think he would have mentioned that? Acts ends on a positive note. The Apostle Paul was in house and prison. People came and went freely. And he preached and taught unhindered. It's just this high note that the book of Acts ends on. Now, if Luke was writing that after July 19th, 64 A.D., I think he would have mentioned the persecution. I think he would have mentioned the death of Paul. I think he would have mentioned his second imprisonment. And I think he would have mentioned the sacking of Jerusalem that was written after 70 A.D. So what's the latest that the book could have been written? July 18th, 64 A.D., the day before Nero burned Rome, the earliest the book could have been written was 62 A.D. when that's the end of Paul's two years in Rome. So sometime between 62 and 64, the book was written. I think what Luke did is he took the story of the early church and he gave its, he told the story all the way up into what was to him the present. 62 A.D., right at the end of Paul's two years. I think he wrote right up to what was his present and then he delivered it to Theophilus. So I think likely 62 A.D. That's when it was written. Now, where was Acts written? Most likely in Rome, most likely to the most excellent Theophilus. Luke was with Paul during that first imprisonment that the book of Acts ends with. So Luke probably wrote that, maybe started it during Paul's early imprisonment there, or right after Paul was released, he wrote that. So in Rome, to Theophilus, sometime around 62 A.D. The third question, or fourth question, what is Acts, or better put, what is in the book of Acts? Acts is what we call a historical narrative. It's a story. That it's not a doctrinal book like Romans or Ephesians. It's not a personal book like 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy. And it's not a teaching book or a didactic book like we find in the epistle. It's a narrative. It tells a story. It begins around the year 30 AD at the ascension of our Lord and tells not obviously the whole story, but the highlights of the story up into 62 A.D., covering a 30-year time period. It's a historical narrative. There's a lot of details in there. As I mentioned, a hundred different people are mentioned in those 28 chapters. A hundred different places are mentioned in those 28 chapters. Twenty-six speeches given by Paul and Peter and Gamaliel and Felix and Festus and Agrippa and Stephen, and the list goes on of all the people who, who spoke or who are recorded as speaking in the book of Acts. And Luke is so meticulous that as he's giving us the travel itinerary for Paul, he even tells us the weather conditions. 
at some of the times that Paul was traveling. And he goes from city to city to city and tells us where he went, where they sailed, what the weather was like. He's just meticulous in his detail. That's why he mentions a hundred different people and a hundred different places. Now can you imagine how limited our knowledge would be of the early church if it were not for the book of Acts? Imagine for a moment that you take that completely out of the Bible. We have four different Gospels that give us four accounts of the life of our Lord Jesus. God forbid that there was only three. You would still be able to get a complete picture of the life of the Lord Jesus by reading any three or even any two of the Gospels. But if it were not for the book of Acts, we would know nothing of the early church. There's only one history of the early church written, and Dr. Luke wrote it. We owe him a tremendous amount. Because if it were not for Dr. Luke, you and I would not know how the church started. We would not know how Paul got saved, why he was an apostle, why we should listen to anything that Paul says because he doesn't show up in the Gospels at all. It's not until the book of Acts that you have Paul the apostle. We wouldn't know anything about the conflicts in the early church, the troubles in the early church, the, the, the problems that they had or how they solved it. We wouldn't know any of that. We would not know how Christianity went from a group of Jews in Jerusalem to the uttermost parts of the world, the city of Rome, and even beyond Rome. We wouldn't have a clue how that happened. And the book of Acts gives us that. That's what's in the book of Acts. Let me give you a brief outline of the book of Acts. You can use either one of these two. First chapters 1-12 through 12 is about Peter. Chapters 13-28 through 28 is about Paul. You can basically outline the book of Acts into those two sections. Chapters 1-12 through 12 deal with Peter, the apostle to the Jews in Jerusalem basically, the chapters 13 through 28 are about the Apostle Paul and the expanding mission of the church. You can also outline the book of Acts around Acts 1-8 where Jesus said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be My witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the remotest parts of the earth. You can have a two-part outline for the book of Acts which deals focuses on people, Peter and Paul, or you can have a three-part outline of the book of Acts that deals geographically. It started in Jerusalem. That's the story for the first few chapters. Then you see the mission expanding to Judea and Samaria. And then eventually you see the book of Acts ending with the uttermost parts of the earth. It's basically the apostles taking what Jesus said seriously. He said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And the apostles said, okay, we'll do it. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, they did just that. They went from a small group of believers in Jerusalem and in 30 years had turned the world upside down for Christ, and Christianity spread to the farthest reaches of the known world. There were churches in northern Africa, there were churches east of Israel, there were churches all through Asia Minor, even up in parts of Spain, through the influence of the apostles. Now there are a couple unique features in the book of Acts, and let me cover these for you. The first one, this one's kind of interesting, Luke doesn't record any book that Paul wrote. You read through the book of Acts, you never see Luke say, we arrived in Corinth and from there we wrote to the church of Ephesus or whatever. You, you never read that in the book of Acts. You never read anywhere where Luke says, and here's where Paul wrote this book. Or here's where Paul wrote that book. You have to, In order to plug those books into the book of Acts, we have to go and look at the details within each of the books where sometimes Paul will say, I'm traveling with so-and-so or uh, this is my future traveling itinerary, and then we can compare that with the book of Acts. So as we go through this, every once in a while I'll mention to you, this is when this book was written. And here's what it was written towards. So that you can, in the margin of your Bible, sort of fill in when, where the books of the New Testament were written. The ones that we know when and where they were written. 
The second interesting feature in the book of Acts is the parallels that exist between Peter and Paul. And in my studies of the book of Acts prior to this week, I had never noticed this. But once you notice this, it's really striking how Luke takes Peter in the first 12 chapters and then Paul in the last 16 chapters and and delineates some parallels between the two men. For instance, Luke records that both men were filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke records that both preached the Word of God with boldness. Both witnessed before Jews and Gentiles. Both contained preached messages that contained the death, the burial, the resurrection of Christ and salvation through Him and the coming kingdom of God. And both of them taught that all of that was in fulfillment to Old Testament prophecy. Both of them preached to Gentiles. Both of them received visions which gave direction to the early church ministry. Both of them were imprisoned for their testimony and then miraculously set free. Both of them healed a cripple. Both of them healed other people. Both of them exercised evil spirits. Both of them possessed extraordinary powers, raised the dead, called down judgment on God, on a, the judgment of God on a sorcerer or a false teacher, and both of them refused the worship that was offered to them by other men. Now those are striking parallels, and they're not accidental. And they're there for a reason. You know why they're there? To show us that the, the ministry of Paul and the ministry of Peter are not divergent ministries. They're parallel ministries. Luke wants us to understand that you don't have the first church of Paul under the Pope Paul made up of Gentiles and then have a Jewish church with Pope Peter made up of Jews. You don't have that. Luke wants to show us that there's one church, one body of Christ, one apostolic ministry, one commission, one gospel, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, not two. And the book of Acts shows that. That's why they're put parallel. You have Peter who did these things, but alongside of him, with a very similar ministry, the same call from the same Lord working in the same church, was Paul. So that we can never begin to think there's a Jewish church and that there's a Gentile church. There's no such thing. We are one in Christ Jesus and there is neither Jew nor Gentile, but we are one new man in Christ. That's why Luke does that in the book of Acts. So that's what's in the book of Acts. Why was the book of Acts written? The first reason is to demonstrate the spread of Christianity. Luke takes us from Jerusalem in a room, basically to a room in Rome where Paul was at. He takes us from Jerusalem with Peter to Rome with Paul. And he shows us how it is that the Gospel got from Jerusalem to Rome. And who had a part in that. And how the Spirit of God worked in doing all of that. Luke shows us how Christianity spread and how the New Testament came to being. And why it is that the Christianity is not just a, a, a Jewish church. Christianity really is biblical Judaism. And the Judaism that exists today in Israel, the Orthodox, is not biblical Judaism. Christianity is biblical Judaism. Christianity is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. The work of the Messiah and the establishment of His church. And that's what Luke shows us. How is it that we went from the ascension of the Lord Jesus to Christianity taking over the Roman Empire. And really, it's an exciting book because you get this feeling as you read through it that Christianity is an unstoppable movement. There's something about it that is unique. There's something powerful there that no matter how much you hate it, no matter how much you persecute it, no matter how much you try and stifle it and snuffle it out, it just spreads. It's like a fire. And you kick the fire to try and put it out and you're just as likely to spread the thing. That's how... Luke portrays Christianity. 
It is an unstoppable movement. You just cannot put it out. And so he traces that unstoppable movement and its mission. And he shows us the spread of Christianity. One of the main themes in the book is that of missions. You see Peter going to Cornelius. You see Paul going on missionary journeys. Barnabas going. Paul going. People being sent from churches. It's the apostles sending people out and witnessing and evangelizing and fulfilling the Great Commission to go into all the world and preach the Gospel. It's a mission-oriented book. A sending book. A go. It's active. It's filled with all kinds of activities and travel plans and the spread of Christianity. It's just moving all the time. You're not going to get bored in the book of Acts because you're going to travel from Jerusalem to Rome in a heartbeat, it's going to seem. In 28 short chapters, it's just always moving. And the second theme that comes out because it chronicles the spread of Christianity, the second theme that comes out, and this is one of my favorites, is the sovereignty of God. It's the work of the Spirit of God in salvation and in the building of His church. It's not what Paul did. It's not what Peter did. It's not what the church did. It's what people allowed God to do through them. And resting in His plan and His power and His timing, it happened. So it's the story of the sovereignty of God. He moves people where He wants. He does what He wants. He's building His church. He's doing it on His terms, in His timing, His way, and He's active in doing it. Second reason that Acts was written, not only to show the spread of Christianity, but also to commend Christianity. It's almost like it's written to a hostile audience. To Romans or people or maybe Theophilus who was not totally sold out on this idea of the church and of Christianity because it portrays Christians as being innocent of all the charges that are brought against them. It portrays Christians as being loving, sharing, generous, uh, servant-hearted, mission-minded, loving their neighbors, submissive to authority. They're not anarchists. They're not out to overturn the government. They're not out to do any of that. And as Luke writes that, that's the picture that you get of the early church. They're just this loving, generous, sharing people. And it's almost written as a commendation that here, this is what Christians are really like to those who are maybe on the outside like Theophilus might have been. So that's why the book of Acts was written. Now the fourth, fifth, sixth question. I'm moving so fast I can't even count that fast. The sixth question that we have to answer is how am I to understand the book of Acts? And I wanted to address this right up front because uh, as we get into this book, you can get into all kinds of confusion on all kinds of different subjects. How are you and I to understand the book of Acts? It's not uncommon for the church in every age and at every time to begin to romanticize the early church and to compare ourselves with the book of Acts, the church in the book of Acts. And I hear people from time to time say, oh, I just wish we could be like the early church. I just wish we could be like the church in Acts. I just wish that the church today were like it was back then. When I hear that, I ask myself, have you read the book of Acts? Do you have any idea what the church was like in the book of Acts? Are you that prone to miss all of the hypocrisies, the immoralities, the strife, the troubles, the heresies, the contention that exists, like between Paul and Barnabas? Are you that prone to miss all of that? One thing that Luke shows us is that the things that plague the church today are the things that plague the church in the beginning. And there's nothing new under the sun. But what we do see is how the apostles resolved some of those things and dealt with some of those things. 
So don't begin to romanticize as we get into this. Don't start to think, oh, I wish we were like that. The golden years of the church. Listen, they were sinners just like you and me. And when they gathered together, they were a gathering of sinners. And you think there was no sin in the early church? You're mistaken. All kinds of sin, selfishness, hypocrisies, immoralities, contention. And those are the things really that drive the book of Acts. From mountain peak to mountain peak of the apostles dealing with different things. And we're going to look at that as we go through it. But how am I to understand it? Because as we get into the book of Acts, one of the questions that we're going to ask ourselves over and over again, is this for me today? That's the question. Are we supposed to duplicate this today? Is this meant for us? For instance, the day of Pentecost. Is that a repeatable event? Should we expect to hear the rushing wind and see the Spirit of God descend in flames of fire and see people speaking in tongues as a result of an extended prayer meeting? Should we expect that to happen today? What about the gift of tongues? Is that for today or is it not for today? What was the purpose of the gift of tongues? Is it to be replicated and duplicated? What about Acts chapter 4 where they sold all their possessions and brought them to the church? Is that to be duplicated today? The early church had all things in common. Should we follow that mold and cloister off into little communities where we share all of our possessions and nobody owns anything? What about Acts chapter 5 when Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead because they lied? Should we expect people to drop dead when they lie today? What about Paul seeing the bright light at his conversion? Should we say to somebody, well, if you haven't seen the bright light and heard the voice of the Lord Jesus, you can't possibly be saved. Because if it happened to Paul, it needs to happen to every Christian of all time across the board no matter where you're at. Now obviously, there's a lot of stuff in the book of Acts that is not meant for us to replicate. Should we expect earthquakes to set Christians free when they're in prison? Some people say yes. Listen, friends. Only the most wide-eyed fanatic who shouldn't be listened to at all would say that everything in the book of Acts is normative for today. At some point, you have to say, that was a unique situation for a unique time to deal with a unique issue. And it's not meant for us to duplicate it today. How do we make that decision? Where do we draw that line as to what is normative for us and what is not normative for us? Listen, there's only one consistent way to do it, and here's how it is. You can approach the New Testament one of two ways. You can take the events in the book of Acts and look at all of the fantastic things that were happening, the exorcisms, the healings, people being healed when the shadow passed over them, uh, bright lights at conversion, hearing the voice of Jesus, visions and angels speaking and stuff like that. And you can take all of that and say, all of that is for us today. We should expect all of that. If this is the church, if this is the body of Christ, we should expect all of that. And then what you do is you take the rest of the New Testament and you try and squeeze it into that mold to somehow make it fit to somehow find that teaching in the rest of the New Testament. Or, you can approach it like this. What does the rest of the New Testament teach concerning these things? And then how do I explain the phenomena in the book of Acts in light of what the entire New Testament teaches? The only consistent way to approach the book of Acts is to allow the teaching books, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, all the way through Jude, to allow all of those books to influence how it is that we approach the book of Acts. And that's the approach that we will take. And that's the perspective from which we will go through the book of Acts. We're going to ask ourselves every time we approach that question, is this normative for us today? We're going to ask ourselves, are we taught to do this in other places the New Testament? And if so or if not, why is that? And so we will take the rest of the New Testament and we will use that as the paradigm in which we view 
the book of Acts as we go through it. And now that's kind of an overview of the book of Acts. Lord willing, next week we will begin to dive into this book and uh, start on this journey from Jerusalem to Rome. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for our time here today as we've been able to sort of open our minds to some of the details in this book. And we do look forward to what we're going to learn in this book. And we pray that You would help us to approach it with a right perspective, a right way of viewing things, and to allow Your Word to speak for itself. And we pray that in the coming weeks and months, that as we travel through this book, that it would be profitable for us and that we would receive a blessing from it. And we pray that You would help us to keep the things in mind that we've learned today in mind for the rest of this book so that we can understand it and sort of relate the things that we're going to learn to what we've learned today. We thank You for our time and we pray for Your blessing upon our afternoon and our week together in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.